You may be seated. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 9, Proverbs chapter 9, and I urge you to follow along with today's message as each week with the outline that we provide. Those here uh, could pick those up at either of the entry doors to the auditorium, so I hope you have one of those. Those watching on live stream, the outline button next to or underneath your media player. The series we are now in from the book of Proverbs is titled, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. Now, starting next week, we're going to begin looking at the many topics that Proverbs covers individually. And that's because today we come to the end of the book's introduction. I've shown you this slide a number of times uh, during this series that the structure of the book of Proverbs is, as you see on the screen, and the first portion, the first nine chapters, are the introduction to the book that lays the foundation for the topical short sayings that are now sprinkled throughout the, the remainder. So we conclude with chapter nine today, the introduction, the foundation. Starting next week, we'll be looking at those, those topical uh, issues addressed in Proverbs. The introduction to the book has been laying the foundation, as I say, for all that is going to follow. And in the previous chapter, chapter 8, it ended with these words. Blessed are those who listen to me, that is wisdom, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Now that sets the stage for this final chapter of the introduction. It says there, in what we have on the screen, to watch at my doors and wait at my doorway. And that's because today's chapter tells us that both wisdom and foolishness have houses that each invite you to enter. In fact, the first phrase of verse 1 in chapter 9 says, wisdom has built her house. And then if you look down at verse 14, it says, folly or foolishness, likewise, sits at the door of her house. Both make their plea for us to come in. And which we choose will set the course for our lives. So let's pray now and ask God to help us as we look at Proverbs chapter 9. Father, we thank you again this Lord's Day as every week for the profound privilege of having the word of the living God in our hands. To be able to be instructed, to be able to be guided through the darkness that is this fallen world. Help all of us to see it then as the great honor that it is and to treat it appropriately. To seek to be instructed, to seek to apply what we hear uh, to our lives so that we can play the role for which you created us to reflect you back to you, to bring glory to your name in all that we do this coming week and beyond. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In your outline, I say, first of all, we must recognize the contrast between wisdom and folly. When it says in verse 1 that wisdom has built her house, it's referring to, when it talks about the house, all that has been said in chapters 1 through 8 to convince us to accept her invitation. 
It's saying, in effect, okay, I've laid it out for you. I, wisdom, have made my case. Now make a decision to live with me, to live with wisdom in the house that I have shown you in these eight chapters. But just as wisdom summons people to herself for her good purposes, folly beckons too for us to abide in her house, but for very different and harmful reasons. That's why the 18 verses of this chapter are divided into three sections of six verses each. Verses 1 through 6 are about the house of wisdom and the invitation to enter it. And then verses 13 through 18, the last six verses, are about the same for the house of folly. And then in between, we have verses 7 through 12 that make clear yet again which is best and why. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18 first, together. We're going to look at both of those sections together. As we see what I say in your outline, that they are different in their purpose. Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Now, when it says in that first phrase of verse 1 that wisdom has built her house, has built, refers to bringing something into existence through a particular type of craftsmanship. She has made this house with purpose to be entered into and to be enjoyed. And the language here about a meal in the house that's been constructed is similar to numerous texts from the ancient Near East that associate a feast with the dedication of a building. A house or other building would be erected and an invitation to all would be issued to come to the dedication. These seven supporting pillars point to an exceptionally large, grand, and stately structure where numerous guests are expected. The main course of the meal, the meat, has been prepared and mixed wine has been produced. She has mixed her wine means she's added something to it like honey and or herbs to make the wine more spicy, potent, and enjoyable. But it also means it's been diluted with water because undiluted wine was considered distasteful by the Jews and the wine for Passover consisted of three parts water, one part wine. The idea is this, that the Proverbs that follow now in this house where this banquet has been prepared are good and pleasant and enjoyable like this meal. At least they are so for those who have a taste for them. At the end of verse 2, it says, this house has a, a banquet table. Only wealthy homes had them. And it says the table has been set. Meaning the Proverbs in the following chapters that we're going to see in the weeks ahead are arranged very carefully, like you would set a table. They're arranged very carefully for the benefit of those who study them. So all is ready for the feast. So verse 3 says, she has sent out her servants. Wisdom sends out her servants to invite. And these servants are those who convey wisdom. Particularly, not exclusively, but especially, 
parents. So as we've been talking about in these eight chapters, and you see that you have a father addressing a son, and I've often made application then to parents how we should use this wisdom as we instruct our children. And she calls out, verse 3 says, from the highest point of the city. We've seen a few times in chapters 1 through 8 what that wisdom occupies a high place so that everyone can see and hear and come. Now, all of that would be wonderful if this was the only voice calling. In fact, there was an all-too-brief time in human history when that was the case. When our parents, Adam and Eve, were created, they knew only one voice in the beginning, that of their Creator. It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? In our fallen world, with all that has happened and all that has accumulated since the Garden of Eden. But there was that time when our first parents knew only one voice, that of their loving Creator. And in the first five days of the creation week, God spoke in an impersonal way to bring things into existence. You'll remember from Genesis chapter 1 that it says there, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place. God said, let the land produce vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. God said, let the land produce living creatures. God said, let us make man in our image. It just goes on like that. And then suddenly, this cadence, this pattern, marked by these words, and God said, is broken. When the text says this, God blessed them and said to them. God's been speaking, but now God speaks directly to the persons that He has made in His image. Here we not only have God speaking, but speaking to humanity because as His image bearers, they alone among God's creation are able to communicate as He does. We have the unique capacity to receive God's revelation, His communication to us. And they hear God's voice clearly. And they follow Him. Until, for the very first time, a foreign voice, an outside voice, an intruder's voice, vies for a hearing. And many of us know the story. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told, the serpent said. And God said, they hear from God, they interact with God, but now the serpent said to the woman, and the woman faithfully speaks to the serpent. It goes on, the serpent said to the woman, the woman said to the serpent. And now, millennia later, we have the accumulation of all of the false information that has come from the voice of of the serpent, who now has a thousand megaphones calling people away from God and toward himself and the folly that he offers. This is why I say in one of our foundational classes here at our church, how to get the most out of your Bible. Many of you, most of you have taken that, but I say in that class that the Bible is about three things. It's about orientation, and disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation is what we had at the beginning. God gives 
an orientation. Many of you have been to orientations at a new job or school or that kind of thing. God gives an orientation to humanity at creation, telling us who He is and what He expects of us. And all is in harmony, all is good, until the entrance of the foreign voice and the willingness to follow it. And that results in disorientation, following that other voice so that sin enters God's good world and all that was clear and good becomes now distorted and harmful. Orientation and disorientation, but thankfully God does not leave it there. And in reorientation, He's bringing people back to His purpose, back to Himself. And the Bible, including the book of Proverbs, is part of the reorientation project. Reinviting all of us who have followed the voice of the beguiling serpent to return to the voice of our good Creator. He's made His house ready for you to enter. The meal prepared, but there remains the ubiquitous and enticing other voice with a nefarious purpose. Look down at verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. The voice of foolishness over all of this time since the garden has degenerated so that it has dulled all spiritual sensibility, leaving humanity wandering aimlessly and only thinking about the next moment of pleasure. So when it says she knows nothing, it means she has lost her moral sense. Now in reality, we all know that the world is not as bad as it could be. But I remind you that that's only due to God's common grace that mitigates the effects. But in many places of God's world, and at many times in history in God's world, that common grace has been removed. Grace, by definition, is not deserved or earned. And so God can give it, but God can remove it as well. And in many places, even in our day, that's the case, and you see the effects of that. And in all places... What I described as the effects of the folly of sin would be, as I said, but for the grace of God. And folly seeks to mimic wisdom's call. As she too, we saw in these verses, is at a high point in the city, and she too calls out to everyone. But you don't have the careful preparation that benevolent wisdom has demonstrated. All having been done by wisdom, for your benefit. Instead, Lady Folly, as we're going to see, looks to use those who enter to her benefit, not theirs. Wisdom and foolishness, that is folly, are different in their purpose. I say as well, they are different in their appeal. In verse 4, wisdom says, let all who are simple come to my house. And in verse 16, Folly says exactly the same thing. Let all who are simple come to my house. <laughs> now remember that in Proverbs, the simple are the uncommitted, sometimes translated the gullible. We'll see those who have committed to Folly a bit later but both wisdom and folly are competing for the allegiance of those uncommitted. 
the simple. Now in verse 13, woman folly is referred to in the New International Version that we use at our church here, so many of you have before you, as simple. She herself is referred to in verse 13 as simple, so that could be confusing. If the simple are the uncommitted, and yet here is this woman who is enticing everyone away, the personification of foolishness, then how can we say that she is uncommitted? Well, that word should be better understood as undisciplined. Verse 13, this woman is undisciplined. Now, why does the NIV say simple and it should be undisciplined? Here's why. Because in Hebrew, the words for simple and undisciplined are spelled the same. Okay? So, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, you only have consonants. And so the consonants have to have vowels attributed to them in order for people to distinguish which is which. So it should be undisciplined. Now, I'm going to go on here in a second, but let me stop. And we know what to do. All right. <laughs> Those of you watching on live stream, the uh, recently healed but now demonically possessed again car has, has reappeared. And so we're taking care of that. Thank you. Thank you very much for doing that. Now, both wisdom and folly invite then the gullible, the simple to their houses for a feast. But wisdom does so out of true love, competing for the hearts of the uncommitted. Verse 4, let all who are simple come to my house, to those who have no sense, she says. And if one accepts wisdom's invitation to come to my house in verse 4, he's thereby repenting of having been uncommitted, confesses his lack of commitment to wisdom, and humbles himself. In fact, some translations, when it says, come to my house, it actually says, and literally does say in Hebrew, turn and come to my house. And so this is that turning that we talk about with regard to repentance. Wisdom now turns though from repentance's negative side of turning aside from the way you're going to its positive side of adhering to something in verse 5. Having turned aside from the way you're going, now do this, come eat my food and drink the wine that I have mixed. And that refers to accepting the teaching that I've laid out for you, I, wisdom, have laid out for you. That's the appeal that wisdom makes for the benefit of those who respond. But folly, on the other hand, invites the same people in the same words, but with a different end in mind. Verse 16, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says this, verse 17, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. The stolen water, food in secret referring to sexual activity as this woman, like the one we saw in chapter 7, invites this young person now to steal what belongs to her husband and partake in secret. And she does not have the interest of the one she's calling in mind, but rather her own. She, ends, she intends to use and abuse as sin always does, of whatever variety that sin is. Friends, here, sexual temptation is used. 
It's been used several times in these opening chapters of Proverbs. But it's simply being used as an example of what sin always does, no matter what sin it is that entices and tempts. So wisdom and folly are different in their purpose, different in their appeal, and they're different in their consequences. The fact is, what folly says in verse 17 about the water being sweet and the food delicious is true, at least temporarily. Because there's always pleasure in doing what's wrong, a thrill from going out of bounds, otherwise we wouldn't do it, right? But notice that it's bread and water that are being offered compared to meat and wine. Now, we should see in that comparison how ridiculous and laughable and deceptive and cheap sin is. It has no food to offer. It has to be stolen. There's no real offer of nourishment for life here. Only lust that leads to death, even as she tries to make it appear better. We should see that. But our sinful hearts often keep us from doing so. Now, as I've mentioned, please understand that the allure of sexual temptation is used as but of an example of folly's invitation to sin in general, whatever the particular sin. And all have the same things in common. They look and feel good at first, but all lead to the same place as we're going to see death. You see, friends, sin always separates deed from consequence. Offering pleasures, but hiding the trap. It always separates the deed from the consequence. And then you're in the trap. And then you experience the consequence. And you say to yourself, how did I ever get here? It seems so right. It seems so good. Through nine chapters, Solomon has painted a vivid portrait of the difference between wisdom and foolishness, which should make this choice then a no-brainer. But Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Thankfully, some do follow the Lord, so an invitation to the narrow road continues to be extended. Verse 6, wisdom says, leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. But because those who refuse to turn have been lied to, here's the consequence of foolishness and following her ways. Verse 18. Little do they know that the dead are there at the end of her road, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So the invitation is fool's gold. And what's behind it is hidden. But the end is always, always the same. One has said this, many eat on earth what they digest in hell. We must recognize the contrast, the difference between folly and wisdom. And we must recognize the character of wisdom and folly. 
As we've seen, Proverbs speaks of the simple, uncommitted, but it also speaks of a type of fool who is a mocker, which is who verses 7 and 8 are about, where we're taught that, I say in the outline, the foolish remain as they are, but the wise grow. Verse 7, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. You see, the mocker is the one who's settled in his opposition to wisdom. And so here we're being told, you don't make the appeal to the person who is settled in their mocking. This is an example of not casting pearls before swine in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. The mocker is settled in his opposition to wisdom, so wisdom does not make its appeal to him because it's not appealing to him. Now, in our day, there is plenty to facilitate the mocker with the cynicism that drips from their lips. Particularly in the last few generations, generations X, Y, and and Z. Phil Vischer is the creator of VeggieTales, and he gave a speech in 2005 at Yale in which he unpacked the media values of these generations that has moved in a slow descent, he says, from the dry wit of Johnny Carson, some of us are old enough to remember that, to the sarcasm and twisted humor of David Letterman, and then the emergence of bottom feeder humor like Beavis and Budhead and South Park. In these shows, Vischer says, we have found our voice. We were safe from the world as long as everything was treated as a joke. He says further, some folks believe Vietnam was the source of America's modern cynicism. Others point to Watergate. But for me and for many others in my generation, the real root is much closer to home and much more personal. When we were very young, our parents broke their promises, their promises to each other, their promises to us. And millions of American kids in a very short period of time learned that the world isn't a safe place, that there isn't anyone who won't let you down, that their hearts were much too fragile, these children's hearts were much too fragile to leave exposed. Sarcasm, as C.S. Lewis put it, builds up around a man the finest armor plating that I know. The last few generations are the first generation born after the passage of no-fault divorce. We are the product of broken homes. The last few generations have come after Vietnam and Watergate. We are the product of broken government. They were the first generations born in the age of consumer religion. We are the product of broken churches. With nowhere to turn for safety, our fears ferment under the surface into anger. But that toxic brew can't stay there. It must find a release. Some of us find very destructive ways to alleviate that pressure. The rest of us let it out by mocking things previous generations took seriously. Government, work, religion, family, relationships, leaders, and the future. We are a generation that believes nothing is sacred. And if nothing is sacred, everything becomes profane. Mocking. Cynicism. 
Verse 8 says, But rebuke the wise. You rebuke the mocker, (laughs) the mocker won't hear it. But if you rebuke the wise, they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. That's why I say in this point, the wise grow. But the mocker remains where he is. Why? Because he refuses to be instructed. But the wise welcome it. They welcome conviction and they welcome rebuke. The people I hear from most over many years in appreciation of giving the Word of God are the people who seem to need it the least. Do you see the paradox there? Why is that? Why are they the people that seem to need it the least? Because they're the people who want it the most. And the more they want it, the more they put it into practice. The more they put it into practice, the more they welcome it. They think they need it. And of course they do, we all do. And that, what's, that is what makes them receptive, whereas others just go through the motions and never seem to grow. Friend, which are you? I prayed this week before we looked into the Word of God. Thank you for the great privilege of having the Word of the living God in front of us. We get to do that every week. And you own a Bible, you're able to open it every day. Do you welcome it? Do you listen to it? Do you want it? Do you want more of that? And if it rebukes you, do you say, Lord, thank you for showing me that because I want to take the next step in my spiritual growth. Whether you do or you do not is very telling about where you are and where you're going. So we must recognize the different character of wisdom and folly. The foolish remain as they are, the wise grow, and the wise will be blessed, but the foolish doomed. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, it's only the wise who have the requisite humility to bow before the Lord's wisdom and so then to benefit from it. And so the fear, the reverence, the awe of the Lord is what begins this wisdom. The recognition that I need it, that it comes from God and it comes from from God's representatives in the form of parents, in the form of teachers, and and in the form of, of pastors. From whoever I get this wisdom from God, I want it, I need it, because I placed myself under the God from whom it originates. Verse 11, for through wisdom, your days will be many, your years and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. You're a mocker. You alone will suffer. So God has said, here are two ways to live, two paths to go. I have painted a portrait for you as clearly as I can, says Solomon. And now you must choose because there are only these two roads. And so I say in your take-home truth, there are only two roads that lead to opposite destinations. On Twitter this week, 
I saw a tweet from a pastor I don't know who said this, Turning from a profession of faith in Christ to embrace the world may feel freeing to the unregenerate, but it is actually embracing the natural bondage of sin. Turning to Christ in simple faith is the truest and most freeing thing in the world. And the question is, do you believe that? You believe that, O oh, simple one, uncommitted, commit. And now in the weeks ahead, as we look in chapters 10 through 31 at what wisdom looks like in the various areas of life, in finances, in relationships, in work, and so on, you'll desire to learn that, to appropriate that, and to put that into practice. But it all begins with humbling yourself before God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we're going to, as we do each week, we're going to pray in just a moment. And as we do, I invite you to trust Christ. It begins there. And so you realize that you came into this world like I did, like all people do, as a simpleton in the sense of, I have this tendency to go in the foolish direction. And I have to make an affirmative commitment to wisdom. That's what we mean by sin. It's another way of describing sin. Realize that you are pictured here. You are a sinner. But recognize that that sin must be paid for because God is a just God. His justice must be done. That's why it must be paid for in full. But recognize that Christ made that payment graciously for you. Recognize you need it. Ask Him for the payment that He made and only He can make. And then turn, as we saw in our passage. Turn from the direction you're going and turn into the house of wisdom. Go into the house of wisdom now to be instructed from the book of wisdom for the rest of your life. And that's what we mean by repent of your sins. I'm going to go your way, God. I'm no longer going to go my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. Whether you're here, whether you're on live stream, whether you're in the parking lot, we're going to bow our heads and as we do, you ask the Lord to rescue you, to save you. Cover your sins, give your life to Him. Lord, I want to follow you with my life and learn your wisdom. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for, again, the opportunity to be here, but now, having been able to be here, gathered in person, and through the other means that you've made available, to have your word before us. Thank you for instructing us in this foundation for the book of Proverbs. And thank you for laying out for us clearly that there are two paths in life, and they lead in diametrically opposite, to diametrically opposite destinations. So help us, Lord, to make the right choice, beginning with the choice to bow our lives before Jesus Christ. Thank you for atoning for our sins, all of them, Lord Jesus, past, present, and future, so that they can be paid for, God's justice is satisfied, and we can have a relationship with the God who made us, so that that reorientation project now is taking place in our lives. Lord, I thank you for doing that in my life, and I thank you for what you continue to do in my life until the day you call me home. 
And I thank you for that work in every one of my brothers and sisters. I pray that that would continue, that none of us would turn aside to anything but your house of wisdom. And I pray for any here who have never trusted the Lord Jesus, that your spirit is moving upon their hearts so that they see the foolishness and their, and their wandering, and that they will now make a commitment to follow you. As a result of that, may all of us bring glory to you in the lives that you have given us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.